Hi, this is Wilson, lead pastor of Renew Church OC. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Our sermon series, Psalms, the Internal Life of David, pairs narratives from David's life with Psalms that help us pull back the curtain to understand what he's feeling, how he's praying, and the way he's relating to God. LA is all about how you look and the two-second impression you give to other people. But God doesn't look at the appearance. He looks at the heart. I hope this series helps us to take our eyes off of the external and focuses our attention on developing our internal life with Jesus. All right. Welcome back, everyone. You'll get another opportunity at the end of service to finish your stories. Anyone have like a drowning story, like water, death by water, anybody? We had uh, Roy almost die, <laughs> death by falling. So I actually have been really enjoying sharing the story of Ara's dad. Ara comes to our church, uh, Saul as well, and her, and her uh, junior high son, Sean. And so her dad is a, kind of an amazing human. So first, he's a neurosurgeon in Korea, one of the top in Korea. And so uh, he's met a lot of famous people who go to him for surgery. People will fly in from around the world to get surgery from him. But besides being a surgeon by day, on the weekends, he's a gnarly mountain climber. And he's about 73 right now, but he's climbed K2 in the Himalayas. He's climbed uh, El Capitan like two weeks ago with um, his crew. And he's known for being the mule. So when you go up to a several day climb, you're strapped in, sleeping on a sleeping bag on the side of a mountain. There's like no waste in your team. Every team member has to have a role. And the 73 year old guy, he's known for being, being able to carry the most stuff. And so as people are ascending the mountain, um, he's the guy that, that they drop off their stuff to when they can't carry it anymore. You have to pack poo, you have to pack a lot of water, you have to pack food, you have to pack your camping gear. So he's the mule of the, of the group. And there's a documentary written about him where he, or, or a film documentary where he talks about how he relates his rock climbing to surgery. Because what he's known for surgery is that he can go a really long time standing there and perform neurosurgery. Like 10 plus hours, he'll beat all the young doctors. Sometimes he'll, he'll stand for like close to 20 hours and do surgery. And when you're a surgeon at that level, no one can take your spot. You know, there's no tagging in. You're like 400 moves into chess inside a person's brain. No one's gonna help you, help you get further. And so what he says is in the documentary is that I, I do surgery the way I climb. I know that there's certain points in my climbing where if I let go of a rock, I'll die. And so when I'm over someone's body doing surgery, I'm thinking if I let go of my, of my surgical tool, they'll die. So if I'm, if I'm not gonna let go of a rock to uh, end my life, I'm not gonna let go of the tool. So that's his mentality. And yet there's also a fear and a respect towards mountain climbing and also surgery for him. He's seen many people die on the mountain climbing next to him. Ara says she has met five people that, that are regular climbers with him that have passed away, that she's personally met. And on the surgery table, people pass 
you know, semi-often because he's taking the most complex surgeries. And so when he approaches the mountain, he knows that today might be the day that he passes or someone around him passes because they're taking the hardest climbs in the world. And then on the surgery table, as he's looking after a patient, he'll tell the family before surgery that this person's life really isn't in my hands. It's in the hand of God. You have to pray for them. He determines who lives and dies. And there's a humility to that. And I've talked to other surgeons who, t who say the same thing, that there could be the same complication in the same area of the body, and they'll do the same surgery, and one person will live, and the other person will die. So for him and for many of us who have encountered the ocean or mountain or storm or earthquake, there's this fear in, as we approach it. Even if we're competent, even if we love the mountain or, or the ocean, if you know what you're doing, you have a healthy fear and respect toward it. And that's some of the theme, or maybe all of the theme, that I'm thinking about as we look at 2 Samuel chapter 6 of David and the Ark. And honestly, I got caught in one part of this passage, and I couldn't let go of it. And the whole sermon became about that. So I'm going to be um, summarizing most of the passages today because we're going through different parts of the Bible. But this is our core narrative in 2 Samuel verse 6, 1 through 7. David has set up his kingdom. His throne is established. He's not fighting with the house of Saul anymore. And then he's defeated the Philistine army. So the borders are secure. No one's trying to invade him. He has a land where he and his people are at peace. His armies are, are resting. And all of a sudden, he's thinking about the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark has made a treacherous journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. But in the, the history of the Ark, it was taken away by the Philistines. They brought it out for war. Everyone brought out their gods for war, hoping for protection, hoping for vengeance. And so when the Ark of God was brought out to war against the Philistines, the whole camp erupted with courage and bravery and excitement. And it brought fear to the Philistine army. They're like, we don't want to fight the living God of Israel. They knew the ark was his presence, uh, his manifest presence on the battlefield. But God doesn't like to be a genie or put in a box. So, so they lose the war and the Philistines take the ark of the covenant and it ends up going from one town to another because it would bring curses on each town. They brought the ark of the covenant next to their uh, idol dragon, which stood above it. But every day when they checked on the ark and the dragon, this idol, it would fall over. And then one day it fell over and the head was decapitated. The arms fell off of it. And it's like this, this box sitting there was destroying their God. It'd go to another city and tumors would break out. It went to another city and people looked at it and 70 were slain and they were in deep fear and trepidation. They're like, we need to get rid of the ark. They threw it on a cart, they had, uh, and they put it with oxen, and they gave all these tributes to it to try to appease the anger of God. They gave golden tumors and rats, and it went, and it just walked straight into Israel. And it resided on the outskirts of Israel for 22 years. And David, almost out of the blue, as his nation is at rest, thinks of the ark. And he says, why is the ark out in the middle of nowhere. 
where Jerusalem is the epicenter of Israel. It's the focal point. It's where people come to gather. They should be gathering around the ark. And so they put it on a new cart, and David assembles 30,000 people to march the ark back into Israel. It's a parade. They're singing. There's dancing. Every instrument's out. It's the, it's the biggest rose parade you could ever imagine, right? But they're walking back God into the middle of their country, into Jerusalem. And as all of Israel is celebrating, as they're walking in front of the ark, something bizarre and strange happens. The, the oxen stumbles. The, the ark of God is about to fall out of the cart. And Uzzah reaches out. He takes a hold of the cart to try to stabilize it. He's trying to not have the ark fall on the threshing floor, fall on the ground. But then the anger of the Lord burns against Uzzah because of the irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark. So this parade turns into a funeral. The songs turn into mourning. The joy turns into fear. And people are shocked and stunned. And I remember reading this passage through the course of my life, feeling what the Israelites felt. Why did God do this? Was this, this felt petty. It felt like he didn't understand. This man's obviously trying to help this ark. And all of a sudden, he's dead beside the ark of God. Why would God do such a thing? And I love that in the next passage, David is angry too. He's angry, he's frustrated, and he doesn't understand why the wrath of God broke out against Uzzah. And then it also says he was afraid. He was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of God ever come to me? So he left it around that, space, around that place, and the, Lord, the ark of the Lord remained there for three months. And this is what I think happens in that three-month gap, that David is asking, why did God strike Yuzah? What don't I know about this God? What don't I understand about the ark? What am I missing? After he processes his grief and anger, I, I just kind of see him gathering scribes and priests in his palace, going, pulling out the Torah, pulling out the ancient texts, and trying to understand God more. And there's going to be times in our lives where we don't understand God, where we get angry, where we mourn, where we don't know why. And I love that David goes deeper, I believe, into Scripture. And I, I, think, I think that's what, what happens because when he reapproaches the ark three months later, he does it in a totally different way. It's like he knows God and he knows the ark. So, as, so this is where I got caught. This is where I did my deep dive and want to invite you into this question as well that David asked, why did God strike Yuzah? And I think to answer that question, we have to ask several more questions. Like what is the ark? What is it? Why, why construct it? And what is the glory of God that resides within the ark? So the, our best glimpse of God's glory is through Isaiah. Because here, Isaiah in chapter 6, God teleports him into his inner courts. 
God brings him to heaven and he's able to see God face to face. And this is him describing being in the very presence of God. I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on the throne. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphims, these, these massive angels and beings with six wings, with two wings covering their faces, two covering their feet, and two were flying, and they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. So here we have Isaiah looking up and seeing God sitting on his throne. And his glory and holiness is so dense and consuming that, that these angels who would be superhumans, superheroes to us, right? Imagine Superman with wings are worshiping God and tr they're trying to press into his glory. But he's so, his glory is so thick that they're being pushed away. So, so there's this pressing in and pushing away, them wanting more of the Lord, but the Lord is the glory of the Lord is pressing away from them. And so, they're, and so they're just singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty as they cover their hands, eyes, as they cover their feet. And then look at what a mere man does in the presence of God. The best of us, one of the greatest prophets of Israel, he doesn't walk up to the thrones trying to give God a high five. Right? He doesn't stand up. He just begs for his life. Woe to me. Woe to me is something you say when the worst possible things happen. When you're in a riptide, you don't know how to get to shore. When you're slipping off of a mountain. When you're in the middle of an earthquake. When you're skidding down the side of the road with your children um, on, on a mountain. You say, woe to me. Isaiah is saying, woe to me. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips. I live amongst a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. This is the posture of a mere mortal in front of the glory of God. There's quaking and trembling and deep fear. Let me paint another scene for you, a scene that I believe David was reading at his study table. A scene where, where God appeared to the Israelites for the first time, inaugurating them into being his nation. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning. There was a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet God. They stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered in smoke. Because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed out from it like smoke from a furnace. And the whole mountain um, trembled violently. The sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. The Lord spoke and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended from the Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up. In Psalm 57, the first couple of verses is really an artistic retelling of that very moment. Think of all the imagery that it's mirroring. 
In verse 2, it says, clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes up before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountain melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all his people see his glory. All who worship images are put to shame. All who boast in idols worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and rejoices. The villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments, Lord. So I just want you to feel small. I want you to feel the way Isaiah does as we look up at this magnificent God. I remember having a conversation uh, with one of my friends. He doesn't know the Lord. He said, I would believe in God if God just showed up right here and told me he was real. Like, can, can that happen? Why can't he do that? Why can't he just show up right here and be like, I'm real, like Daniel? And Daniel would be like, okay, cool. His name's Daniel. But it's many years ago, so I'm pretty sure he won't be listening to the sermon. And I was frustrated. I was like, God, why can't you do that? Why can't you just show up? He's willing to, like, believe in you. Just show up. If God showed up, Daniel would die, and I would die as well. We'd be consumed by the glory of God. I called my mentor, he has a PhD, and I asked him, what's the difference between this scene at Mount Sinai and in the throne room and, and the fact that God is ever-present, that God is here right now, God's in your closet, God's like in the deepest cave. Like, what's the difference between God being omnipresent, God being everywhere, and God being here on Mount Sinai and here in the throne room? And we talked about it as a manifestation of God in all of his glory. Whereas we often get God at a distance. It's like feeling the warmth of the sun. It's 100 million miles away, give or take a million. And we enjoy the sun. It's beautiful, it's kind, it warms us. But what if you got closer? What if you stood in front of it? What if you touched it? It would consume you. Most of our experiences of God, thankfully, is at a distance. But here in these moments, Isaiah and Moses stood in front of the Lord. And, and we see on Mount Sinai these really intimate conversations between God and Moses. Moses says, I want to see your face. He represents us, wanting to be near him, wanting to be loved by him, wanting to be intimate. And God wants to be with Moses too. But he's afraid of consuming the sinful being. And so God says, I'm going to put you at the back of a cave. And, the, and you look out the mouth of it. And I will pass by and you'll see my tail. Kind of like seeing the tail of the comet. He says, if you see me face to face, you will die. But let me, let me put you in the mouth of the cave so that we can be near and I not kill you. And that's why God made the ark. That was the function of the tabernacle of the temple. Because God wanted to be with his people. Because his people wanted to be near him. God told Moses, I'll send an angel to walk you to the promised land. You don't need me. If I'm too close, like, I'll consume people. And Moses is like, no, I'd rather be with you on this mountain camping than to be 
in the promised land. Come with me. So they put God's glory into a little box called the ark. And the function of this ark is to shield God's glory and holiness from the people of God so he doesn't consume him, them. And then they put a tent around them, the tabernacle. And, and it's supposed to separate the people from God. It had all of these different sections. There's the Holy of Holies where the, where the, the Ark of the Covenant resided. There's this really thick veil. And then the priests would gather in the holy place. Only priests were allowed in there. And once a year, the, the high priest would go into Holy Holies. In the courtyard, the men and women of Israel would gather. And then outside of the courtyard, the Gentiles when the temple was built. So the tabernacle was this traveling temple that contained the Holy of Holies and shielded God from his people, all wanting to be with them but not consume them. The tabernacle, this layout, is actually a, a blueprint for the temple that would be uh, made from Solomon, the son of David, in, these very, uh, in the very same partitions. And then in Hebrews, God actually says that this temple is a small replica of his temple in heaven. It's, a, it's like a miniature. And in all these ways, God is building, being with his people without consuming them. And now we go back to David. Three months has passed. I believe he's read about God. He understands everything there is to understand about the Ark of the Covenant. He read its history. He, met, he read its construction. He's read how it's supposed to be handled, that no one is to touch it. You're supposed to slide poles in, and then people from one specific lineage of, of the priests of Israel are to pick it up and carry it. And then it's supposed to reside in the Holy of Holies. So now look at how David approaches God. After he comprehends his greatness, after he understands his holiness, he goes back to where the ark was left. They're still rejoicing. He still um, gathers thousands of people to do a parade. He's dancing with all of his might before the Lord. There's still music and percussion and a band worshiping God. But instead of a cart, they carry it. And then every six steps, right? How many steps is six in a mile journey, right? One, two, three, four, five, six. Every six steps, they kill a fattened calf and a bull. So alongside of worship and celebration, alongside of this parade is a carpet of blood from this man's home to its new home in Jerusalem. And this blood is to symbolize the distance between us and God's holiness. It's simply to say we cannot approach God's holiness because we're sinful. And to appease the judgment of God, to appease his holiness, there needs to be blood sacrifice over and over again to say, God, we're sinful, we deserve death, but would you take it out on this animal instead of us? And just like Moses, David is holding the holiness of God 
the might of his glory, his unbridled glory with his own sinfulness. He's holding God, I want to worship you and draw near, but even angels are covering themselves. God, I want to be intimate with you, but I've, I've sinned against you. He's holding all of that together as he's walking the ark back home. And when he gets there, he has a, t- a tent pitched up, I believe the same as instructed in the Old Testament, and he starts sacrificing offerings and fellowship offerings to the Lord. He blesses the people, and he sends them away with, with cakes. And we see him hold that tension between intimacy and fear, between God's wrath and God's love. And I wonder how well we do that as believers. We get what it means to be intimate. We've had a couple hundred years of Protestantism where we've take it, where we meet outside of cathedrals, where the priest doesn't dress up, where we kind of come to church when we want to, and we approach him however we want. That's not the way it used to be. There's good to that, like an ease and intimacy and friendship with the Lord. But man, it probably came at a deep cost to really getting his glory and holiness, to really understanding what it means to fear God and to hold that intention. I remember uh, coming back from Zion, me, the Shays, Saw and Ara, we're hanging out at a hotel for a night just to spend more time together. And at Zion, we have this free expedition from one of my close friends uh, of cannoneering. We go down these caverns, um, these cannons, and then there's another trail where you repel down three or four waterfalls. Then you hike back up again, and there's a 200, maybe 100 feet uh, drop. And you're hanging off the ledge of a cliff. And when you're dropping down, you can't even touch the wall of the mountain. You're just sitting on the harness coming down. And Saul and Ara are talking about the canyoning trip with me, Mark, and, and Hiroko. And they're just kind of describing, like, how fun it was, but also how unregulated my friend was. Like, he would send them ahead and kind of be like, oh, figure out how to do the ropes and harness, you know? I need to help these people catch up in the back. Or he would send the group ahead, oh, figure out where the trailhead is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start up the car. And so, like, we lost Dr. Ken on a trip. Saul, and our, Saul kind of slid down the side of the canyon, uh, the, the, the lip, and fell into, like, a little pond instead of being able to hook himself up well. And Mark and Hiroko, also great climbers and have done multi-pitch climbs, was in, like, I, I, can't, I don't know how to describe it. it. It felt like, I felt like, Mark was upset with me because <laughs> he let this happen. I let this happen. And he was explaining man- meticulously all the things that could go wrong in the way that we were doing canyoning. And, and how, like, we need to train multiple people. Someone needs to be at the front. Someone needs to tie people in. Someone needs to be at the back. We need to make sure that everyone who's leading this trip and there's multiple people knows how to safely guide these other people down who don't know what they're doing. And he's just like walking through all of the liabilities, all the things that could go wrong. Uh, Mark has led many trips for APU. Um, he's, he's been trained. My friend hadn't been. He has a great heart. But when Mark was, um, you know, what I felt like lecturing me, 
I did feel this deep, like, fear and respect for the mountain. Like, he loved, he loves playing on the mountain. It's his happy space. Uh, when I see him climb, I feel like he's a superhero. But then there's this deep respect as well, where he understands that you do the wrong thing, and the same mountain that you've fallen in love with, that is beautiful, that makes you feel brave, will kill you. David learned that about God. David learned that this God that wants to be intimate and close, that ultimately lives inside of us, is to be held with reverence and fear, is to be respected. When I look at some of these verses in 1 Corinthians, I, I, I wonder what it means to respect God um, and, and for his glory to reside inside of us. In 1 Corinthians, two times Paul says that, that we are his temple, that us gathering together form the temple of God, and also us as individuals are temples of God. So when you think about Isaiah standing before God's glory, when you think about Mount Sinai, when you think about the ark, his glory and presence lives inside of us. But whenever Paul talks about this, he does it with fear and reverence. He had, there's personal implications of what it means to fear God as he lives inside of us. There's communal implications of fear and trembling for us to be the temple of God. In verse 16, it says, flee sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside of the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? who you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. When we think about God living inside of us, is there a sense of, man, I want to be holy because a holy God lives in me. I want to be holy because a holy God lives inside of me. And how, we can't do it perfectly, right? But how do we strive to clean out our insides, our character, our integrity, the way we, what we do in our private life in front of the screen, what we do with our, our dating partner when, when, we're, when we're out and about, what we do in our business, how we conduct ourselves uh, to our employees, how do we live with deep character because God lives inside of us? How do we long to be holy and righteous before him, to, to house him? And then the second piece, it says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And he's talking about us as a community. And that God's spirit dwells in your midst. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. It's so easy, right, to talk flippantly about the church, how we hate religion, how the church sucks, how our pastor sucks, how it's really hot, you know? And it's not that we shouldn't keep people in power accountable. That's not what I'm saying. Or blindly obey someone. But what I am saying is that God cares about the church. And God cares that we have a reverence to the temple of God inside of us and to the church that is holding the very presence 
and person of God in our midst? How do we build up the church? How do we care? How do we come in with hearts that are expecting to worship the same God that Isaiah saw? How do we come to church holding the word of God high and with reverence and say that the same words that we're reading today in scripture is the same words that create the universe? You know, we're not about, we are a, a casual church, right? I'll come and preach in shorts. Um, Joey's in a tank top. And, and our stage is, you know, we're trying to forget, make you forget you're in a gym. So that's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about in our hearts. Is there a reverence in our heart before the Lord when we pray? Or is it just a two-liner like saying bye to an acquaintance or hello to someone we see every day? Is there a reverence in our hearts for God's word to say that would this govern our lives? Is there a reverence in our heart as we worship the Lord so that not everything we do in our life is optional, uh, our spiritual life, right? Like maybe I'll come today. I'll show up to small group when I want to. I'll pick, pick up the Bible if, if my eyes are bleeding from Candy Crush. You know, like it's, do we give God our best? Do we order our lives around him? Do we care that he sees every moment of our lives and we are in fear of him? Or is he someone we just take casually? We approach casually, we think of casually, and we don't really care whether he's speaking or he's near or he's uh, close to us and lives inside of us. I hope that today, the same way we've learned to respect nature, whether it's a riptide or canyoning or icy road, we would say the God who melts mountains, deserves even greater respect and fear than anything we've ever encountered. He gives us our next breath. He knows the number of our days, and he is holy. I, I, know, I know it's a, man, we just, we don't talk about it enough. I don't get it. I'm in the same fishbowl as you. But I hope that as a community, we would just check these moments in our life and ask, are we approaching a holy God in these moments? Or has he just become Santa Claus? Is he like visiting my grandpa? Is he just another friend? God, we come to you this morning and we ask that you help us to see you as you are. And sometimes that means us being confused and afraid. But would we see you, Father? Will we see your great love and your nearness? And will we be afraid of your holiness at the same time? Will we desire you to live in us and then desire all of the sins to be expelled out of us? Will we have a Jesus that we can sit in front of for hours making eye contact and being in your presence? And a King of kings and Lord of lords where the, foot is, the earth is his footstool, and you sit on a throne where every nation bows. Teach us to hold that together. Teach us not to let go of one for another. Teach us to live in love and fear of you.
In Jesus' name, amen. Today we're going to take communion together. And I just think about how comprehensive Jesus' sacrifice was. That the same God that was going to consume is, uh, Isaiah, that same God lives inside of us. I, is, um, uh, Yuza couldn't touch the ark, but, the, but this, that same God lives inside of us. Because Jesus took the nails, he took the wrath of God, and he forgives us. That's what bring God, brings God from far away, a million miles away, into our very souls. Father, we confess our sins to you again. Without your blood and body broken and shed for us, we, we would be in, in torture. We would, we would be consumed by you. But because of your blood and body, we can come before you as sons and daughters. We can be close to you. We love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi, this is Pastor Wilson again. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If our sermons have been a blessing to you, I'd love for you to consider supporting our church and ministry. As we approach the end of the year, we're asking our church family to consider investing into a special fund that support our interns and seminarians. Renew has a vision of investing in pastors for the next generation through our internship program. And your financial partnership can help set up a young pastor or missionary to faithfully serve the Lord for the next 30 to 40 years. I often dream about what Irwin or Kevin will do for the kingdom of God through their 30s, 40s, and 60s. Our goal is to raise $50,000 over the season. Would you consider joining us? You can give through PayPal or Venmo or by sending a check. All the information is on the description section of the podcast, or you can visit our website, and your investment is tax deductible. Thank you so much for being a part of our church family. If you're ever in the Fullerton, California area, please drop by into our Sunday service. I'd love to meet you. God bless.